The Lord God, we are utterly dependent upon the work of your Holy Spirit to take the seed of your word and to do, Lord God, which that in which you promise to do. And that is, may your word not return void. We bless you. And we honor you. And we love you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. And amen. It is so good to be with you. If you have your Bibles, if you could meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the ninth chapter of Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. As you're turning there, let me just say how absolutely thrilled I am to be with you all this morning. I have looked forward to this time ever since Dr. Mason called me and invited me to come and to share with you. I love the city of Philadelphia. I was actually born here. My mother grew up in Germantown, and uh, she went to Germantown High School. And uh, so I'm also thrilled to hear the potential of a church being planted there. I have uh, many family members who live right there on Penn Street in Germantown who are nice people but who just are lost. And uh, they, they need the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preached and proclaimed and lived out before them in a very powerful, powerful way. Again, as you're making your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, let me also say this to you, and I hope you'll forgive me, but I grew up in a little small Baptist church, smaller than this one actually, and uh, we didn't have much. In fact, uh, this little small black Baptist church that I grew up in in Atlanta, um, we didn't even have central air. That's right, uh, a church with no central air in Atlanta, Georgia, which meant southern, southern uh, summers was nothing nice for us. In fact, if you walked into our church there in August, what you would see would be a, a sea of fans, little wooden sticks, cardboard glued to it, picture of Dr. King on one side, <laughs> advertising a funeral home on the other. Come on, go with me, somebody, this morning. Anybody grow up in a church like that? And all the chocolate people said, hey, amen, amen. One of the things that I learned in that church, one of the things that they taught me was honor. They taught me to honor our leaders. They did not teach me to deify them. They didn't teach me to worship them or to idolize them, but they taught me to honor them. Um, they, 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 they taught me things like, if the man of God sows spiritual things, he should reap material things to honor, to, to take moments to let the pastor know you appreciate him. Dr. Mason is probably embarrassed that I'm doing this, but, but I, I've just come and I want to go on public record of saying that there are 2,000 people in Memphis, Tennessee who have been blessed by your pastor. And they sent me here uh, with a token of appreciation and honor for your pastor for the blessing that he is to the body of Christ. And so we want to we present this to him. Now, let me say this. Don't let folk who don't come to this church out-honor you when it comes to your pastor. Um, I, I'm not saying you've got to write him a check. I'm not saying you've got to do uh, what we're doing, but what I'm saying is I think the number one way the enemy gets us as pastors is discouragement. Encourage your pastor. 
do something to tangibly say, we love you, we bless you. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 24, the Apostle Paul says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone, verse 25, who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. So he's talking about Michael Vick and the Eagles and the training camp and the two-a-days. And hopefully, you know, they'll go deep into the playoffs. But my Falcons will go farther. But he says they do all that, maybe for a Lombardi trophy, that will not last. How much more so, he goes on, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, verse 27, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. It's also good seeing my old college roommate here, uh, Steve. Good seeing you. Thanks for coming out. Golf tournaments on the PGA Tour have four rounds. The first round begins on Thursday, and the last round concludes on Sunday. Sundays are the day that, based upon how you traverse the course the previous three days, you are compensated or rewarded for your efforts. On Championship Sundays, you are and many times cut a check based on how well you've done. Rewards are dispensed and a trophy is presented based on how well you have done the previous days. Sundays on the PGA Tour are the days in which you receive your reward. Because of that, Championship Sundays, these Sundays on the PGA Tours, their pin placements are the toughest. I know that I've just lost some of you, so let me explain. The pin happens to be that stick, the flag that protrudes out of a hole in the ground. They move it around the green each round of the tournament. Sunday's pin placements are always the toughest. They're the most difficult for the golfers to get at, located in some obscure part of the green, well guarded by some bunker or some water hazard, Sunday's pin placements are always the toughest. Because after all, Sundays are championship Sundays. It is the day in which you get your reward. Several years ago, I was given a ticket to the Mount Everest of golf. I was given a ticket to go and to see around at Augusta National, where they play the year's first major. I was initially disappointed because my ticket did not say Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. My ticket said Wednesday. I was given a ticket to see the practice round <laughs> of Augusta National. But that's okay, because I was just happy to be there. So I pulled up, and for four glorious hours on a Wednesday, I followed around the immortal Tiger Woods, who was paired with his friend Mark O'Meara. For four hours, I watched Tiger and Mark O'Meara hit shot after shot into the green. 
I noticed initially something rather odd. Right away, I noticed that Mark O'Meara would hit his ball within about 15 to 20 feet of the pin, but Tiger Woods, green after green after green on this Wednesday, this practice round, never hit his ball anywhere closer than 50 feet away. What's more is Tiger Woods did not seem to be disturbed. In fact, he seemed to be more than content. Finally, I could not contain myself when on one par three it was a front left pin placement. I watched Tiger Woods hit his ball 60 feet to the back right of the green, whirl around on his heels, and slap high five with his then caddy, Steve Williams. Steve then said to Tiger, had the audacity and nerve to say to this man who hit his ball 60 feet away, great shot. Well, I lost it. I lost all sense of etiquette. There, among the mighty throng of people gathered at that seventh green, I said out loud, great shot. That was not a great shot. Tiger Woods is 60 feet away from the pin, to which one of the members in the gallery promptly put me in my place. He said, dear sir, if you'll notice, today is Wednesday. It is a practice round. Tiger is not thinking about Wednesday's pin placements. He's playing with Sunday's pin placements in mind. Here it was, a Wednesday, and Tiger Woods refused to allow himself to be mastered by the tyranny of the urgent. Here is a man, Tiger, who decided to lift his gaze from the world of Wednesday and set his sights to the day when he would get his future reward, Sunday. The problem with so many Christians is we are so mastered by the Wednesdays of this world that we forget to play with the Sunday of eternity in mind. The problem with life, Chuck Swindoll once said, is that life is just so daily. If you're not careful, you will get so caught up in the dailiness of life that you will forget to play with your Sunday in mind. You know how it is tomorrow morning, the alarm clock will go off. And there will be kids to wake up, breakfast to prepare, school to go to, assignments to meet, meetings to attend, only to do it all over again the next day. String around a couple of those days, a couple of weeks of those days, and before you know it, you will be so mastered by the mundane in this life that you can forget to play with the next life in mind. As we come to the book of Corinthians, this was exactly their problem. The Corinthians were so enamored with the Wednesday of this world that they forgot to play with the Sunday of the other world in mind. Right off the bat, Paul rebukes them, beginning in chapter 1, verse 10. He says, what is this mess that I'm hearing from Chloe's house? I've gotten a report that there is division and divisiveness among you, that some of you all say that I am of Paul. Others of you say that I am Apollos. Others of you say that I belong to Cephas in his crowd. Paul goes on to say that one of the ways that you know that you are living with this life in mind, dominated by the flesh, is your inability to experience community with other people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. 
He goes on in chapter 3 and he goes a little deeper. He says in chapter 3, I wish that I could talk to you as, as spiritual people, but you are still carnal. You are still fleshly. The way that you know that is you are biting and devouring one another. One of the indicator lights that I know that the Spirit of God is not in control of my life is the inability to experience long-term sustained community with other people who know Jesus Christ. The problem, Paul says, is you are not playing with Sunday in mind. In chapter 5, the text takes a little bit of a Jerry Springer type turn. In chapter 5, he says, what's this mess that I hear? That one of y'all is shacking up with your stepmama. You'll forgive me, that's not how the original Greek reads, but it is a fair transliteration of the text. He says in chapter 5, there is a deep problem here. And it's not just that this person is living in sin, but those around this person know about it and won't speak the truth in love. You are so in love with the Wednesdays of this world that you are not playing with Sunday in mind. In chapter 6, Paul turns up the heat a little bit. In chapter 6, Paul says, what is this mess that I'm hearing? That people who have been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ cannot get along and you've got to go to unsaved people outside the church to get you to mediate and navigate your relationships with one another. And in the process, you are making a mockery of the name of Jesus Christ. Now in chapter 9, Paul picks up the pen, dips it in the ink, and grabs the Corinthian community by the lapels. He wants to lift their gaze from the Wednesdays of this world and to play with the Sunday of eternity in mind. He begins in verse 25, or rather verse 24, by saying this. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners, underline it, run, but only one gets the prize? Underline it again. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Our text hinges upon three key words. The first key word is found in verse 24. It is the word run. It's the Greek word treka from which we get the English word track. But this word run, hang in there with me, does not so much speak of the physical repetitious movement of one's feet as much as it does to the attitude or the essence of the runner. Or to say it another way, this word run doesn't so much speak of one's motion as it does one's motive. For this word run literally means to give it your all. Paul says you can always spot a person who is playing with eternity in mind. It's because their life is marked by radical excellence. Radical excellence. They give it their all. Now, y'all a little quiet this morning. I don't know if that's the ethos of this first service. First service folk are normally quiet, so I'll give you a pass on that, but I don't know if you're getting it, so I'm going to have to work a little harder. I, I, I grew up, again, on the south side of Atlanta, a little town called Fairburn, and one of my favorite things to do growing up was to play Pop Warner football. Nothing gave me greater joy than hitting someone in Jesus' name. <laughs> Legalized violence. I loved it. Every August of every year, my brother and I would beg my dad to march us down to Duncan Park and sign us up for Pop Warner football. 
uh, Pop Warner football in Atlanta is a big deal, and so there'd be hundreds of kids who would go through the registration process. We'd move from station to station. One station, you'd stand on the scales, and they'd want to know how much you weighed. Another station, you'd sign medical release forms. And then the last station, it, it was time to, to write the registration fee. Now, now you need to understand this. Uh, my dad, as some of you know, is a phenomenal preacher. The problem with my dad as being a phenomenal preacher is he does not need one of these to preach to you from. Uh, my dad has a great reputation of preaching to you anywhere and, every, and everywhere. Uh, one of my dad's finest sermons, he would always preach in registration line there with several hundred other little kids adorned with their folks. Dad would stand there with a checkbook in hand and would preach to us the same sermon every single year. He preached it to us so often that, that I've memorized it word for word. Checkbook in hand, Dad would say, now sons, your mother and I don't, don't make a lot of money. We're on staff with a nonprofit Christian organization called Campus Crusade for Christ. In fact, sons, we raise our own support, which means, technically, sons, I am not your provider. I am merely a conduit by in which God provides. I'm like eight years old, conduit. What in the world <laughs> does that mean, right? He says, now, sons, this registration fee is a lot of money, but your mother and I are more happy to pay it. But, but before I write this check, let's get two things squared away. Number one, sons, if I pay, you stay. In other words, sons, I ain't trying to hear midway through the season that the weather's too hot, the practice is too long, the coach is too mean, the boys hit too hard. No, no, no. If I pay, you stay. One year, to solidify his point, he marched us back home, took out the Loritz Family Dictionary, flipped to the Q section, uh, took out a pair of scissors, and literally cut out the word quit. From then on, Dad used to always remind us, see, the word quit doesn't even exist in my house. If I pay, you stay. Now, Dad's second point was a little bit more problematic. I went to counseling for years over it, but Dad said... Son, secondly, if I pay, you stay and you play. In other words, sons, I am writing this check not trying to do what you're doing, and that's watching the other little boys play. Sons, I'm writing this check, and it comes at a great cost for me. I'm giving it a significant investment because I expect you to give it your all. I expect you to perform at the highest levels. Not to earn this check, but as your way of saying thank you for the check. Yeah. Epiphany, on the occasion of your seventh anniversary, I want you to know that there is a bad heresy floating around the church of Jesus Christ. You all are far too sophisticated in your faith to actually utter these words, but it's how so many people who claim to follow Jesus Christ function. So many of us function as if salvation is cheap. I want you to understand something, that salvation is free, but it most certainly is not cheap. See, the marathon of the Christian life had a registration fee. Ours was paid on a hill called Calvary, where Jesus Christ died the excruciating death of crucifixion. In fact, Epiph, do you know where we get the word excruciating from? It comes from the Latin excruciatus, ex, out of, cruciatus, cross. The word excruciating literally means out of the cross. When they were looking for a word that would be the emblem of pain and suffering, they went to the cross. 
Lee Strobel, in his wonderful book, The Case for Christ, interviews a medical doctor who was an expert in ancient crucifixion. He said, when a person was crucified, more times than not, long rivets were nailed, not through this part of the hand, but through this part of the hand. It would go through two bones, striking a nerve, causing the fingers to draw up. Long rivets were nailed in between the feet, and two centurions would come and drop you into a post, and upon being dropped in a post, all of your joints would become dislocated, and your lungs would fill up with mucus, and you'd have to push up to get air. Witnesses to ancient crucifixion said that the common sound that you heard was the belabored inhaling and exhaling of people being asphyxiated to death. You know the average length of time it took a person to die the death of crucifixion. It wasn't two or three minutes. It wasn't two or three hours. But the average length of time it took a person to die the death of crucifixion was two or three days. But if you had a nice centurion, he would take his club and break your legs, and we call that nice, so you could no longer push up to get air, thus expediting the process. Epiphany Fellowship, I'm here to tell you this morning that salvation is free, but it most certainly is not cheap. I believe Jesus Christ is saying to us, because I've paid, you stay. Because I've paid, don't come talking midway through the race that the marriage is too tough, the kid is too ornery, the economic season too down. No, the word quit should not exist in the Christian's vocabulary. And because he's paid, you stay and you play. Give it your all. Epiphany Fellowship is your life marked by radical excellence. Verse 25, he continues though. He says, everyone reading out of the New American Standard who underline it competes in the games, goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Verse 24, our first key word was run. Second key word, verse 25, is competes. It is the Greek word, hear it now, agonizomai. 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 If that word sounds faintly familiar to you, it should. It is from that Greek word, agonizomai, that we get the English word agony or agonize. What Paul says in verse 25 is a completely un-American thing. He says the marathon of the Christian life, like any other marathon, presupposes pain, and problems. What Paul now says strikes at the core of this comfort, individualized, God is my cosmic concierge theology that would seek to minimize God to someone who exists for my hedonistic pursuits and pleasures. Paul says, write it down. 
take a picture of it, Instagram it, in this life, you will have agonizomai. In this life, there will be agony. I had an assistant one time, her name was Lynn Takish, and Lynn ran a lot of marathons. I came to Lynn one day and I said, Lynn, tell me about this thing that I hear in marathons called the runner's wall. Lynn looked at me and said, in language I cannot even begin to relate to, she says, the runner's wall usually hits me, I love it, between miles 18 to 20. Can't even relate. (laughs) She said, the runner's wall is that surreal moment in the race where your body turns around and looks at you and says, are you kidding me? Stop. This hurts. But then she said this word, but those who finish the race, push through the pain. I I want to take a theological station break, and I know I'm in Bible country. I know I'm in a good place. I know your pastor does not teach this. So if you are here looking for a church, you are in a great Bible teaching place. But nonetheless, oh Christian, may I exhort you to be extremely discerning of what pastors you podcast, what preachers you watch, because there is this name it, claim it, confess it, and possess it, theology from the pit of hell. that says that the varsity side of the kingdom are those who follow Christ so closely that they get everything they want, the brand new range with 26-inch rims, they never get sick, never lose their job, and if for some reason you're not getting what you want on your list, then it means you are naughty and not nice, that you did something wrong. Makes you wonder, what Bible are they reading? They must literally cut out the whole book of Job. Here's a man that God describes as being perfect and upright. Yet Job, in one season, loses his business, goes to a funeral with ten caskets. Each casket containing one of his kids is covered from head to toe with boils. And, and I hate to say this in mixed company, the worst part. Is to have a wife chirping in your ear. Curse God and die. Curse God and die. Better to live on the corner of a roof. Yet nothing in the text hints at Job doing anything to deserve the discomfort that he experienced. They must cut out the teachings of Jesus. I love how Jesus gave altar calls. He always gave you the fine print first. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself daily. Take up his cross. Follow me, praise team. Let's sing a chorus of just as I am. Doors of the church are open. Two churches, two chairs down in front. They must cut out the cross itself. What did Jesus do to deserve the sin, sickness, and suffering of the cross? They must cut out the teachings of Paul. Paul says, indeed, all who desire to be godly in Christ Jesus, not might be, not could be, but will be persecuted. In fact, an indicator light of how closely I am in love with Jesus, it is not seen in how I respond in the air-conditioned, cushioned pew, controlled environments of Sunday morning. It's how I handle the agonizomai of Tuesday afternoon. 
I'm here to tell you, Dr. Mason, I have been preaching since the age of 17. I have gone to schools. I have learned the Hebrew and the Greek. I have composed homiletical outlines. And in those early days of preaching, I knew from an experiential level absolutely nothing of what I was talking about. But I have lived long enough to know something about the agonizomai of life. I could tell you about my little 10-year-old boy who has been diagnosed with hyper-eosinophil syndrome. Every week I have to take a drive with my 10-year-old child down Poplar Avenue, there in Memphis to St. Jude's, where we sit there in a waiting room with bald head, cancer-stricken, five-year-old kids with masks on their face. I know the pain, the agonizomai of a little 10-year-old boy begging, Dad, why again? I know the pain of falling on my face and begging God, take what he has and put it on me. I know that pain. I know the pain of having to fire a staff member who did something so morally repugnant and that staff member happened to be related to you by blood. I know the agonizomai of life. I know the agonizomai of surgeries with my wife. And just in June, she found a lump on her breast. And through all of that, having to every week will myself by the power of the Spirit of God to love on and shepherd God's people. In this life, friends, you will have trouble. Driving down Poplar Avenue, I, I need to confess tears rolling down my face. God exposed my self-righteous entitlement because something in me thought I've tithed. I've moved from one place to another. I'm a pastor of a church. I deserve a pass. Something in me thinks that do good over here, get good over here. Prosperity theology, I'm here to tell you, it lives within all of us. Paul says, check a box. There will be agonizo, my friends. Problems will come. So the question on the table is not will they come, but why? I, I, I remember spring term of my freshman year, trying out for football. Again, love hitting people in Jesus' name. And I, I, I tried out and went out. And then next semester, first semester, sophomore year, I decided I wanted to play with the big boys. I wanted to go out for varsity, not junior varsity. In order to do this, I needed to lift weights. So I went and lifted weights for the first time at Campbell High School's gym. I walked in, it was packed out, all these big buff people, I waited for the bench to clear, walked over there, put some weights on the bar, did a couple of reps, got something to drink, and in the middle of my second set, I heard a familiar southern voice, it was Coach Bradford, the head football coach, crying out, Loritz, son, what are you doing? Take those girly weights off the bar. My first time lifting weights, man, I had to have had at least 10 pounds on either side, I, I thought I was doing good. He marched over to me, take these girly weights off the bar, and he put these huge 45-pound plates on either side. And real loud, he said, now lift this three times. 
I'm thinking to myself, I, I wish you would use your inside voice. <laughs> but here I am calling on every name of Jesus, the age of 15. Boom! Mm. This thing ain't moving. <laughs> and I'm struggling, and I'm struggling. And all of a sudden, Coach Bradford set down his clipboard and began tapping up the bar, saying, come on, son, two more. Boom! It still ain't going nowhere, coach. <laughs> and he began tapping up the bar, saying, come on, son, one more, one more. I ain't had one, coach. <laughs> he says, son, just think of all these cheerleaders cheering for you at the first pep rally. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and he's helping me out. And then I'll never forget what he said to me after that third rep. He said, son, it's your first time lifting weights, isn't it? I said, yes, sir. He said, son, you want to get big like, like Fred over here? Yes, sir. He said, weightlifting principle number one, if you want to get big, you have to pick up something heavy. If you want to get big, you have to pick up something heavy. As long as you lift what only you can handle, you will never get the results. Can I bless you with this? Someone walked in this morning. Rapes of life. This marriage ain't moving. These kids ain't moving. These finances ain't moving. And God is peering over the balcony of heaven saying, I got you right where I want you. For in your weakness, I'm made strong. Come here, Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit acts as your divine spotter who taps up the bar and whispers in your ear, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. You are more than conquerors. But you've got to make up in your mind when agonizomai comes, I ain't going to grumble, I ain't going to complain, and I ain't going to quit. What the enemy means to destroy you with, God wants to use to develop you with. Finally, Paul says, verse 26, Therefore I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have, here it is, preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. First key word, run. Second key word, compete. Final key word is preach. This is an interesting word. It was, it was an athletic term. Every other year, the Corinthians had their own version of the Olympic Games called the Isthmian Games. They called it that because Corinth sat on an isthmus. In these games, as today, you would have various contestants and various contests, and there would always be an umpire or referee who would announce the rules. You would say, here's what you can do, and here's what you can't do. Here's what's inbounds, and here's what's out of bounds. The word used to announce the rules is the same word Paul uses in our text as preached. Paul says, I'm very careful with how I live, because I don't want to be that guy who announces the rules over here, but lives over here. 
Paul says, for anyone who announces the rules of the Christian life over here, but lives over here, you're disqualified. You could be a pastor with your people, talking about it over here, but walking over here. You could be a husband with your wife, announcing the rules over here, but living over here. You could be a parent with your kids, a co-worker with your co-worker. Paul says, anyone who talks it over here, but lives antithetical to what he talks about. Disqualified. What is disqualification? It is not loss of salvation. How in the world can you lose something you never earned in the first place? But it is loss of reward. What's the big deal, you might ask? When I graduated from high school in 1991... Our class was a medium-sized class, which means it was small enough to where when we walked in, we got a program, and there was all the graduates' names. I noticed right away while I'm in my cap and gown that some graduates had certain symbols next to their names. Uh, One set of symbols meant that Keisha graduated summa cum laude. Uh, Another set of symbols meant that Michael graduated magna cum laude. And then there's my name. No set of symbols. Simply meant that I graduated thank you, laude. (laughs) I couldn't resist. You know, it's interesting. Here I am, cap and gown, looking at my name, no set of symbols, no rewards. Cap and gown, graduated, but I'm sad. I've graduated. I'm in there, but I'm sad. Joyous occasion, I've graduated. Done deal, but I'm sad. No rewards. And I have this thought. I'm looking at my name, no rewards, and I'm looking through the rearview mirror of my tenure in high school, and I have this thought. I wish I would have pushed it a little harder. I wish I wouldn't have compromised. I wish I would have burned the midnight oil. Paul, earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he likens all of our works as being put on a divine conveyor belt. These works will go through the fire. Those things that we did in this life that had no eternal value or significance will be wood, hay, and stubble. And when that goes through the fire, it will be completely consumed. Those things that we did in this life that will be gold, silver, and precious stones that did have eternal value It will be purified, and I believe those elements will go into the making of our crowns. The point of crowns in heaven is not parade around saying, look, I've got more crowns than you, for we will lay them at the Savior's feet. But woe to that man, woe to that woman who has nothing to lay at the Savior's feet. What Paul is arguing here for is integrity. Integrity is the alignment of one's words with deeds. It simply means, I do what I say. As a black man, I'm pretty rare as we close. I say that because I'm one of the few black people in this country who can trace their lineage to pre-emancipation proclamation days. For our family, it starts with my great-great-grandfather, a guy by the name of Peter who was a slave, worked the plantations of Asheville, North Carolina. The family that owned us, German Reformed family, was incredibly nice to us. In fact, they led Peter to faith in Jesus Christ. Parenthetically, we've since tracked down the descendants of those people that owned us. We've got them on the phone and asked them out to lunch. They're like, whoa. <laughs> I was like, no, no, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. I don't want my 40 acres and all that. So I just want to, you know, <laughs> take you to lunch. They led Peter to faith in Jesus Christ. When the emancipation went down, they gave my great-great-grandfather 300 acres of land in Catawba County, North Carolina, free and clear. 
My great-great-grandfather was illiterate, but he loved Jesus. And it was this love for Jesus that helped him to memorize almost the whole New Testament. How could he do that if he was illiterate? According to family tradition, he would rock back and forth on his old rocking chair and have his kids read to him from the same sections of Scripture over and over and over again. That served as a double-edged sword. That not, not only got the word into him, but that got the word into them. And all of his kids became followers of Jesus Christ. Peter finished well. His youngest kid was my great-grandfather, Milton Loritz. Milton took his allotment of the 300 acres of land, planted a church that still exists today called the Thomas Road AME Zion Church. Of all the churches I've ever preached at, no offense, Epiphany, that is my favorite. It only seats about 75 people, but Milton and Peter and their wives are buried outside. Milton had 14 kids. Milton loved Jesus and made sure that he shared Jesus with his children. All 14 of his kids came to faith in Jesus Christ. He finished well. Milton's youngest boy, my grandfather, Crawford Willard Loritz Sr., old Hambone, they called him, he played in the Negro Leagues, played with the likes of Josh Gibson and Satchel Paige. It's amazing, and it's a shame that some of you young bucks don't even know those names. But my grandfather, during one off-season, was working a coal mine. A blast went off, knocked out his eye, and ended his playing days. But it didn't end his joy because he was playing for someone far greater. He was playing with Sunday in mind. And when he died, he died having finished well because he lived for Jesus. The reason why I'm so fair-skinned is because his wife, my grandmother, Sylvia Lucinda Gray Loritz, her mother was a domestic. She was a black woman cleaning a white man's house. That white man raped her. My grandmother was the product of that rape. She went through horrific things growing up. The white community ostracized her because of her black blood. The black community made fun of her because of her white blood. But at an early age, she came to the foot of the cross. She surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. Her last dying request on October of 1998 was that I would read to her from her old tattered torn Bible, Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And that is how my grandmother passed. Their youngest son, my dad, is the most godly man that I know. He came to faith at the age of 14 in Newark, New Jersey. He made a commitment in those early days of his life that he would spend every day in his word praying for his family. I asked my dad recently, he would never say this publicly, how many days in the past 50 years have you missed reading your word and praying? He bowed his head ashamedly and said, only 12. I have not kept my commitment, but my dad nonetheless is the godliest man that I know. Every morning at 5.30 a.m., he wakes up to go to the local Dunkin' Donuts where the unsaved cashier lady has his table reserved and tells people to stay away because she knows Dr. Loritz is there to meet with his God and pray for his family. And I have no doubts that when my dad dies, he'll die having finished well. I get on a, on a plane this afternoon. 4.45, I leave for Memphis, Tennessee. I'll pull up there in our home there in Collierville. I'll hit the garage. My kids will come running out, not because they're happy to see me, but because they'll want to know, what did you bring me? <laughs> Friends, I pray that when I die, I would have died having left them a baton of faithfulness that began with an old illiterate slave named Peter, went down to Milton, down to Crawford, over to his wife, down to Crawford Jr., down to me. I hope... When I die, Quentin Miles and Jaden will have a legacy of individuals who played with Sunday in mind. Now, look, I know where I am. I'm in inner city Philadelphia. Some of you guys are going, that's great. That's not my legacy. The Temptations saying some of your legacy. Papa was a rolling stone. Wherever he laid his hat was his home. 
When he died, all he ever left you was alone. I'm here to tell you, you can begin a new legacy today. You can start a new legacy. A legacy that says, I'm not going to play with this world in mind. I'm going to play with the eternity of Sunday in mind.